HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host. It's our 14th year talking about beer and uh, many other things from the food system on Heritage Radio Network. We're going to go around the room and introduce our guests. We are getting ready for the Craft Malt Conference, which is March 16th to 18th, uh, 2023 in uh, Portland, Maine. So uh, let's go around the room. Everyone's going to introduce themselves. Jesse? Hi, Jimmy. Thanks again for having us back. I'm really excited to be here. I'm Jesse Bussard, the Executive Director of the Craft Monsters Guild. Well, thanks so much for working on this and, and keeping it going. This is our second episode uh, since January, previewing the, the Craft Malt Conference. And Rob? Uh, hey, everyone. My name is Rob Arnold. I am the president of a company called Advanced Spirits and also the author of the book, The Terroir of Whiskey. Which uh, seems like it's got a New cult following. I, I just ordered mine. <laughs> oh, yeah? Well, tell me how it is. Oh, yeah. And then we got Mark. Yeah, I'm Mark Sorrells. I'm from Cornell University. I'm a professor of plant breeding and genetics, and I lead the Small Grains Breeding and Genetics Project there. Wow. Well, this is quite a lineup, Jesse. Um, th- these are some of the star speakers from the Craft Mall Conference that's coming up in March in Portland. Um, just to give our listeners a little you know, intro, what was it like putting together the, the speakers for this conference? I know that, that it took about three or four years to actually get the conference actually to happen because of the pandemic, but the lineup of speakers is freaking unbelievable. Yeah, so the, the, the really great thing about um, being in the craft malting industry is there's a lot of really exciting things happening with malt and just grains right now uh in the industry both you know in the distilling world and in the brewing world and on the malting and uh plant breeding side as well so uh there's no uh you know i I was never at a loss for topics uh to to pull from and i really strive to um make sure there's a nice assortment of of talks that'll really fit a really wide array of, of attendees. So, you know, everyone from the, the head maltster to the marketing director to a brewer uh, who's, you know, maybe looking to uh, expand their knowledge about craft malt or a distiller who wants to, you know, perfect their craft using uh, malted barley. So uh, there's really a, a lot of opportunities for people from across the supply chain at our conference, which I think is unique. Uh. Well, I'll tell you, my intro to regional grains goes goes way back over 12 years ago to June Russell and the Grow NYC Green Markets, and they were just just teasing the waters on regional grains and creating standards for the bakers in their markets. And um, I think along the way, I, I heard about Mr. Mark Sorrells at Cornell. Um, Mark, you want to give us a little intro about the work that you've done uh, at Cornell, and particularly with with New York and barley and and 
how long you've been in this field? Well, um, I've been here a while. I, <laughs> I came here right out of uh, a postdoc at Wisconsin in 1978. Um, and uh, uh, we uh, got into barley. Uh, we've been bar testing bar mostly feed barley up until 20, about 2013, 2012, 2013. And then we started testing malting barley because the New York State, the New York State Legislature passed the Farm Brewery Bill. I gave tax and marketing incentives to uh, farm breweries, and but um, but they have to have to use New York grown ingredients. So I started getting calls and emails asking what malting barley varieties to grow. And unfortunately, there was no malting barley being grown in New York, and we hadn't done any research on it before that. So we convinced them to support us to develop a uh, a malting barley breeding program, and that was uh, that was the start of it in 2016. That's great. And you, you guys came up with a, a New York variety that that that's doing really well. Well, how, how is that Excelsior doing? We've been pleasantly surprised. Um, I was down at Hudson Valley Malt uh, a few weeks ago and got to see one of my varieties being floor malted there and it looked beautiful. It was just we just had a, a wonderful season for growing malting barley in New York. Uh, the seed is really nice and bright and high germination percentages. Uh, well, we released two varieties. We did release them in record time uh, because we knew that uh, uh, farmers needed a variety that was adapted to this region and could tolerate the climatic stresses like pre-harvest sprouting, foliar diseases, fusarium head blight. And we released two varieties in 20, 2020, 2021. Uh, one was called Excelsior Gold and the other one was called CU-198. So those varieties uh, uh, were in, in commercial use now for two years, small quantities a couple of years ago, and then larger quantities this past year. And, and so far, the, both the farmers and the maltsters have been happy with them. That's great. It was, I know it was big news when, when they came out, and I'm looking forward to talking to you more on the show about the conference. Um, and Rob, tell us about you. So uh, I know that you were a distiller and... Uh, but you're working more in whiskey, right? Yeah, so I I grew up in Kentucky, and I'm a third-generation member of the whiskey industry, so um, I grew up around it. I, I never thought I was going to go into whiskey until I got to grad school and started home brewing, and then it kind of spiraled out of control from there. But um, for uh, I was the um, – in 2011, I was uh, – I joined – Firestone and Robertson Distillery Company in Fort Worth, and I was the the first employee there. Um, and our brand was TX Whiskey, and I was there for ten years. So, um, you know, I had a, a lot of different roles over the years. My my marketing title was Master Distiller, but um, I, I had all sorts of pursuits beyond turning valves and knobs in the distillery, and and one of those was um, continuing my my science background. And so, actually was able to complete a PhD in plant breeding while I was at TX Whiskey um, with uh, Seth Murray, who's the uh, corn breeder and geneticist at Texas A&M. And we pursued a project around the idea of how terroir impacts the flavor in whiskey. Um, we looked at bourbon whiskey specifically, so a corn-based product. Um, and this idea of terroir meaning how the genetics of the, the corn variety, the environment in which the, the variety is growing in, as well as the interaction of those two, um, how that variety expresses flavor through its environment, um, trying to establish some sort of idea of how those three effects, the, the genetics, the environment, and the interaction can impact flavor in whiskey. And so I, I really, I'm, I'm a bad excuse for a plant breeder, uh, or at least I've never done a cross in the field barely done any kind of farming. So the fact that I've got a PhD in plant breeding is, um, you know, I'm, I'm much more of a distiller and, and flavor chemist, but um, my, uh, you know, having to, it was something that was really interesting to pursue looking at the, there's so many varieties of corn that are out there. And this is true for, barley, wheat, and rye, and other grain types. But in, especially within the bourbon industry, everyone 
for decades now has has just jumped to using number two yellow dent corn, maybe number one if they've cleaned it well. The number doesn't mean anything as far as flavor. It's this yellow dent corn variety is a commodity, is um, very narrow genetic diversity compared to what else is out there in the corn species. And so to really take a step back and say, well, you don't have to just use yellow dent corn when you make bourbon and, and explore what that can mean um, was really interesting. And I think the same thing is, I know the same thing is happening within barley and uh, for beer and, and to a lesser extent in rye and wheat, but there's still um, movements towards exploring the diversity of varieties that exist within the species um, and then how they uh, can be tailored or, or how the local flavor based on where that variety is grown can be very distinct to a place. So a lot of that background and research and hands-on experience in the distillery led me to write a book called The Terroir of Whiskey, which uh, I guess chronicled the science that we, we did um, when I was at TX and in, in grad school, as well as some of the kind of travel adventures I got to, to go do and to visit places in Ireland and Scotland and New York um, and uh, Kentucky and visit distilleries and, and some malt houses that were you know, that are really trying to pursue this idea of local flavor. You know, before we go too deep, um, I would like you guys to talk a little bit about just what farm to glass is. And, and, you know, especially Mark with you, you were just at, you know, Hudson Valley malt house and you're seeing the malt, um, you know, variety of barley. Um, do, do you go all the way and, and taste it in the glass and, uh, are you able to, to tell the difference? Well, it's interesting that you um, asked that question. Uh, we, I haven't actually done a controlled uh, scientific evaluation of, of that particular quality, but when we were at the uh, New York State Empire Barley and Malt Conference in December, um, we, ha we had a, a brewer from the Culinary Institute of America who brewed with, uh, with my Excelsior Gold and and had samples there for people to try and it had, the, had, a, had a really a wonderful Pilsner flavor to it. It was uh, quite tasty. It was probably Hutch, right? Hutch Kujman? No, you got it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and then what about for you, Rob? Yeah, farm to glass. Well, as far as, you know, can you, like what we did um, through our research was actually this controlled experiment and grew um, different varieties on different farms and actually in the lab processed them into into whiskey and did chemical analysis and sensory analysis and and yeah we we could break it down to you know the flavor of corn was impacted this much by the variety and this much by where it was grown and this much by how those two things intertwine with each other so I mean you you can you know I think the idea of can you taste the impact of of grain variety or growing environment in beer and whiskey. I, I think the, the science, and it's not just our group that has done work, work here that's been published. I mean, all the, all the data out there that has been published through peer reviewed journals shows that the answer is yes, it does impact the flavor. And so I think where it gets really interesting is to move past that debate because that debate's kind of worn out and talk about, well, how much does it impact flavor or how much can that grain to glass movement really be used to tailor or to capture new forgotten local flavors, you know, can, can we kind of get past talking about it in general broad strokes and really get to some specifics the way I think the wine industry does a great job of being able to show how certain flavors are very specific to this wine region or this grape variety. And that's where I would like to see our industry go as well with, with grain is being able to really pinpoint some of those unique aspects that are that are from a variety or from a from a region, from a growing environment. Yeah, the, the the person who has done the most work with flavor and barley is Pat Hayes at Oregon State University. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. and and he's he's actually uh, done quite a lot of controlled uh, uh, tests uh, to find out if different barley varieties and different growing regions affect the flavor. Yeah, and. Uh, I think um, 
what's been really cool to see what, what he's done. Um, you know, what there's been some really cool work out of, uh, you know, Pat Hayes has done some cool work with whiskey too, through Waterford distillery and a guy named, uh, Dr. Dustin Herb. And, um, mm -hmm. I, uh, I think what's interesting to see is when you do just, if you try to analyze all the flavor compounds present, there's just, there's a litany of flavor compounds present in beer or whiskey. Um, but if you try to really peel it back and say, okay, well, which ones are actually important for flavor? And you can start to narrow it down through specific techniques. And then it gets interesting to me because then you can start to maybe really, uh, you know, how do you mingle the agronomy, the plant breeding, and the, the brewing distilling process to really go after the flavors that you're, that are, that you're looking for that are specific to your variety or, or your growing environment. How different is it um, when, when you're talking about barley and grains for whiskeys uh, versus beer? I don't really have an answer for that. Do you, uh, Rob? Yeah. I mean, the, the flavor compounds themselves are usually uh, conserved across the different, whether it's, you know, I, I, this is something I talk about in my book a lot. And I, I did the comparison of whiskey to wine and, and I got some kind of people up front questioning, well, is that really a fair analogy? But the flavor compounds that are important for wine or almost all of them are also very important in whiskey. And the same thing applies to, to beer. What you're talking about more is variations and concentrations among the same flavor compounds or the same flavor compound classes. I mean, it's still, still comes down to, you know, esters and terpenes and phenols and aldehydes and, um, you know, the ones that humans are sensitive to, um, it's, it's usually the case that, you know, isolamyl acetate, for example, is a very common flavor compound. It smells like banana that is in beer and wine and whiskey and all sorts of other stuff. Um, and so that's the nice part about the research is you can, I think it does translate nicely across different styles, whether you mean spirit styles, alcohol styles you know, styles within the ale category, whatever it is, I think there's a lot of nice overlap that, um, so that, you know, you can apply something you found in wine to whiskey or to beer as an example. Yeah. Uh, the monsters I've talked to say, say that they are really trying, trying to avoid off flavors more than specific uh, compounds, but uh, yeah, because they don't want off flavors in their product. Yeah. And that's been common, for really, you know, the, the breeding programs for malting barley, it's the flavor is always, um, from what I understand, it's something that's considered at the at the end of the process to make sure that an off flavor isn't coming from that specific variety. I would love to see us one day get to the point where flavor is a trait pursued in the breeding program. Um, it's a very complicated trait and uh, not one that's easy to breed for, but I think if you're focusing on specific flavor compounds, it's, it's possible. Rob, what, what, what's it like developing, you know, barley for Texas uh, versus New York? You guys can both talk about that. It's a broad question, but I think it's, it's a good well, thing for the show. Yeah. Mark's probably better. I've never, uh, <laughs> I have not ever worked with barley in the field. Um, like I said, I'm actually a pretty sorry excuse for a plant breeder, but um <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna let Mark. I might. I might let uh, Mark take that one first. I think most of the barley is grown in western uh, states and western Canada uh, uh, provinces, and uh, uh, these are drier climates. Um, I think wheat is predominantly the grain that's grown, small grain that's grown in Texas, and I don't know uh, much about barley production in Texas. It, it's really, uh, it's it's really been the, most of the barley is like I said has been grown in western states and the western prairies of Canada. Um, but we realized that when we started growing malting barley in New York, uh, that those varieties just are not very well adapted. Um, we have a lot more kinds of abiotic stress and biotic stress here, uh, and so it requires really a, a different emphasis in the breeding program. Uh, but what we're 
but we're I think we're going to see more and more barley growing uh, being grown in non-traditional areas because the craft beer industry really likes to have local products and so do consumers. Yeah, I can confirm there there are two craft malt houses in Texas. Oh, are there? So there Great. There, there are, is barley being grown there <laughs> as well as wheat and other small grains. Um, Tex Malt is uh, probably the largest craft malter there, and and they work, work largely with distillers, uh, which is really cool to see. So, um, yeah, there there's lots of barley being grown in Texas. Maybe maybe not as much as New York, but it's there. Yeah, the that's good to know. We um. TX was involved in that early on. So Texmalt was actually down the street from our first distillery. I mean, you could walk there and be there in a few minutes. That's convenient. Yeah. So um, I got to know Austin and Chase there pretty well over the years, the two founders. Um, and they, they actually are the sole provider of, of barley, whether it's malted or, or not. Um, although all, at this point, all of it is malted that comes through uh, to TX whiskey for, for making their bourbons and, and rye whiskeys and all that barley that they use is sourced from the the farm that provides TX with corn, wheat, and rye as well. And that's Sawyer Farms. And Sawyer Farms is maybe 40 minutes south of Fort Worth. And um, nice. John Sawyer's had a lot of success growing thoroughbred six row. Um, I think he's grown some, uh, done pretty well with Calypso. That's a two row, I think, mm. right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, it's definitely possible. I think um, he's had some years better than others, definitely. And um, there's the further south you go in Texas, the hotter and wetter it is. And sometimes the I think there's been more of an issue growing it further south. But here in the northern part of the state, um, and he and same with other small grains. I mean, you're right. Wheat is wheat was already established here, but uh, rye, uh, whether it's Elbon, has done okay here. We've actually been able to grow some of the hybrids. The, the Brissetto and Bonos here in Texas. But whether it's barley or rye, they there's definitely it would definitely benefit from some breeding efforts to tailor the varieties to the to the area. It's still a struggle compared to wheat or corn. So um but yeah, I mean the Tex malt crew is, is great. They do they're able to work with a lot of great farmers and source a lot of great local barley and other and, and rye and Wheaton. I think they even malt some corn. So, mm-hmm. Jesse, what what are some of the questions that you think will be happening at the conference? Um, and you probably have a couple <laughs> questions. For I think guys. I think Rob's gonna have a, a groupie following of um, craft <laughs> maltsters who want them to sign his uh, copy <laughs> of their book of his book. <laughs> I think that's gonna be a thing. Um, I also think it's kind of cool that the fact that the two uh, speakers that are joining me on this uh, interview are the first and the last speakers in the conference. So we've got the the first and the last in our lineup um, on the same conversation. So that's kind of quirky. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited about just really everybody getting back together again. Um, it's been three years since our community has uh, had a conference together like this. So it's, it's long overdue. And I think there's going to be a lot of excitement and energy at the craft mall or at the uh, malt cup award ceremony. Um, that's always an exciting event because we, we, you know, we, we announced the winners for each of the categories. And this, this year we had four categories, which is the most we've ever had. Um, and we'll be doing the best of show judging in Portland, Maine, uh, the the uh, on the 16th, and then announcing the winners on the 17th that night. So that's always a, a really fun and exciting evening. Um, it'll be great to see who gets uh, crowned this year's Malt Cup winner. <laughs> best of show. Jesse, are, are are the maltsters that have won top prizes? Are they seeing an, an uptick in interest in their malts and in sales from brewers and distillers? Um, you know, there's a, we do have a few uh, craft mall houses that have you know been repeat winners, and they do use that um, that 
those accolades to promote themselves as award-winning monsters, you know? So, um, yeah, there's, there's definitely people, uh, using it as a, as a point of, you know, a, a to set their product apart, which is really cool. That's great. That's something that I'm really interested in hearing about is, I think it's along those lines is how has the consumer been responding to this movement over the past couple of years? I mean, when I was an active distiller, I was, in the in the thick of this but um i mean i, I really at, at this point my now what i do is is not distilling day you know the day job i i run an investment fund where we focus on whiskey on startup whiskey brands and um so i work with a lot of brands and is that called li liquid assets rob <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> so we have a lot of yeah but we i mean we have a lot of um, liquid assets there you go um i i don't know i it's some now i'm as i now i'm away from the day in and day out of, of being in the middle of the distillery and and of, of a lab but i you know how much is the consumer responding to this idea of of local grain um of specific flavors that come from a place that come from a variety i still completely believe that this will this is going to continue to be a point of differentiation and something that the consumer does care about, but um, I'm interested to hear from the brewers and monsters and distillers that are there, just how the market's been responding to the idea when, when it's used oh, as a yeah. marketing. Because um, in That's the end, if the consumer's great, not, great part of the if the consumer's not picking up on it, if the consumer does if then, yeah. I think we're seeing, you know, we've personally, the Guild has seen an uptick in production over the past three years. Um, and we, we did a recent survey last year uh, where we found that just in the past three years, there's been a 60% increase in production. Um, and, you know, we've also seen numbers of malt houses increase. We continue to hear about more and more operations expanding or, or new developing malt houses uh, getting close to opening. So there's there's a lot of growth happening, and I, I I feel like that growth wouldn't be there if the interest wasn't there. Um, so we're you know I think brewers and distillers are looking more at craft malt for a number of reasons, but you know I think climate change and just the and then the rising cost of everything is really one one driver. Uh, it, craft malt's just becoming um, more. It's the, the price of malt is is high enough now that even the commodity malt in some cases is like as the is the same price as craft malt. Oh wow! Um, and you know this that was reported in a Good Beer Hunting article recently. Um, so it's you know there's we're seeing things like that happening in certain areas, um, not everywhere necessarily, but you know there's there's people looking to source locally reduce their impact um, or there's people looking to take advantage of that differentiation through, you know, the local terroir um, and connection to place. And craft malt is just uniquely positioned for that, but also American single malt whiskey. We can't forget about that. <laughs> Jesse, just um, jump talking about States and production. Um, what are the top States right now that you, you're seeing the craft malt coming out of and, well, in terms of the acceptance, because I know, like, in my mind, just from doing this conference, I see Maine, I see New York, I see North Carolina as three East Coast mm -hmm, states mm -hmm. where they have strong, yeah. strong regional mall. Yeah, I would say Michigan's another. Um, and then, you know, the Pacific Northwest, Washington, Oregon, um, California, those states are really a great place for craft monsters. And, you know, but I... I would say that there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of interest and desire for more local grains in the Midwest. And that's where I hope more growth happens. Wow. Hey, we're going to go take a step back here. I want to ask Mark, um, just going back a few years, Mark, how, how hard was it? And what, what were some of the, what were some of the stories you could tell about the early days, even eight or 10 years ago, when you didn't quite have the New York State Barleys, how did you talk to farms about taking it on? And, and how important is it for the small farms to, 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 to do small grains like this? 
Uh, it was a challenge. Uh, before I get into the details, I'd just like to point out that in the year 1879, barley, uh, New York was number two in barley production in the United States. That all changed, of course, with the opening of the Erie Canal and Prohibition. Getting back to your question there, um, Jimmy, uh, we, have, we are fortunate to have an outstanding extension service, cooperative extension service here in New York. And they were instrumental in training farmers on how to grow this new crop. It's, uh, it's not like growing feed barley for sure. And uh, when we brought in those varieties from other parts of the US and Europe, uh, especially the ones from Western uh, Canada and the US, they turned out to be extremely susceptible to pre-harvest sprouting. And uh, consequently, uh, uh, farmers lost their entire crop of malting barley in several times in those first few years. And some of the farmers just gave up. They said, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fool around with it. Um, uh, but fortunately, uh, we found that some of the varieties, particularly the ones from Europe, had some uh, pre-harvest sprouting resistance. And so, so uh, those varieties were grown quite a bit. Uh, they have a bit of a different malting profile than the uh, uh, Western US, Western Canada varieties do, but, but the maltsters seem to be happy with them and be able to make them work. But we, we, we really needed a variety that, had, that combined both foliar disease resistance and pre-harvest sprouting resistance with uh, good yield and good malt quality. And that, that takes um, a breeding program that is specifically targeting a particular growing region. Uh, even though we were able to make it work with the varieties from other parts of the country and the world, um, they, they weren't perfect and they weren't ideal. So, um, so that's why we launched our own program to try to meet those needs of the, of the maltsters and brewers. That's great. We're going to take a short break. And we'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. This is our 14th year of broadcasting weekly uh, many different shows about food, farming, beer, and whiskey on uh, heritageradionetwork.org. You become a member, again, heritageradionetwork.org. So we're, we're doing another Craft uh, Mall Conference pre-show uh, with Jess, Jesse Buzzard, the executive director, and two experts, uh, Mark Sorrells and... Rob Arnold. So we're having a great conversation. And uh, Mark was just talking a little bit about the challenge and some of the early days of, of getting uh, farms in New York to adopt to taking on small grains. Um, Mark, you know, New York to me is, uh, you know, my home state and what I what I know from drinking and alcohol and, you know, guys like Jason Saylor and Strong Rope. Oh, yeah. Um, th there are some brewers that that live by, you know, New York ingredients. Um, and there's others that, that are want to embrace it. You know, they, they might have a small system where they're using, which is their farm brewery, and, and they're trying to focus on New York ingredients, and they may have a larger system that's not the farm brewery. So I see a lot of, but I think that, that, that you guys have done a great job in that I think across New York State, the brewers know 
you know, what local is and what local malt is. Um, are, are you proud of yourself? Well, uh, not me particularly, but I'm very impressed with, <laughs> with some of the breweries like uh, Strong Rope. Uh, being able to use 100% New York grown ingredients, I think that's pretty impressive. And it takes, it, it takes an outstanding maltster and brewer to be able to use local ingredients because they change every year and they're different from different farms. So it's a challenge that uh, only the most skillful maltsters and brewers can, can manage to uh, uh, deal with. Uh, so that's, that's sort of the, I think that's one of the most important aspects of, of growing and uh, brewing, malting and brewing locally is to deal with the variation from farm to farm and year to year. Yeah, no, it's great. And then you said you were just up at Hudson Valley Malt with Dennis. Um, yep. He's also grown. Um, again, what tell us your experience of, of being there when when you, your variety of barley is being malted. Yeah, well, he collaborates with um, uh, Ken Migliarelli Farm, and uh, uh, Ken's a good farmer. Uh, hasn't he's only been growing barley for a few years, but but he's a very conscientious farmer. He gets the barley out of the field on time, cleans it, and uh, Dennis appreciates the high quality of grain that he gets from Ken. Um, when I was there, it was, a, it was a field to pint tour organized by Cooperative Extension of Ulster County. And uh, uh, when we visited Hudson Valley Mall, by the way, their, their uh, tasting room is beautiful. You really ought to try to get there to see their tasting room. It's, it's uh, uh, right, and, and there's windows. You can see, you can see the floor malting going on from the from the tasting room, and they, they gave me a wow. they, they gave me a rake, and I went out there and raked some of my own barley. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there too. I was I was there in 2016 when they I think they were just when Migliorelli's farm was just starting out. Yeah, with, with barley. Yeah, um, and and uh, he I think his a couple of Dennis's sons do a lot of the work there now. Uh, but it, it's a beautiful facility. It's worth worth visiting if you get a chance. Oh yeah. Well, th thank you. you know, we, I, I know that in New York State, people talk about the work you're doing, and um, looking forward to hearing your full presentation at at the Craft Mall Conference. But talking about Craft Mall Conference presentations, Rob, you want to preview your your keynote? I don't want to give the whole thing away, but. Um, you know, there is a lot of buzz about your book, The Tawar of Whiskey. And um, what do you have a few notes from your keynote presentation? Yeah, I mean, um, I want to talk about, uh, to start, I guess, what this idea of terroir, I mean, what exactly is it and why has it been debated within whiskey, at least? And I've seen it debated equally. And um, and beer and that, for that matter, sometimes in wine. Um, but maybe try to move past that debate of does it matter for flavor and talk about some of the more important points that I think are, you know, yeah, yes, it does impact flavor, but how do we, how do we really leverage it to create distinct beers, distinct whiskeys that the consumer recognizes as, as something special? Um, and to do that, I think, you, if you, working with just as an example with plant breeders and agronomists, you, we can't go down this path and sacrifice the the things that we need for sustainability and yield. But at the same time, we can't. We don't need to just ignore flavor along the way. Um, I think it really does start back at that point with the seed and with the and with the uh, the farming practices. And I, I would love to see us get to a point where consumers are recognizing specific varieties um, like Mark's, like the way that the industry for whiskey, at least still to an extent recognizes golden promise um, and Maris Otter and within corn, there's bloody butcher. And I just, I would like to see the consumers really understand the, uh, how, you know, become some of these varieties become not just words that ain't names that the industry knows, but that the consumer knows and understands and, and maybe even get to the point where, uh, regions or or growing regions are uh, understood to be 
special for the flavors that you can that are being coaxed out of them. But I, and so I guess I want to talk about how do we get to that point? Like, you know, I, how do we get past um, some of the the debates that exist at the consumer level? Does it even matter? And get to the point where we're really able to to show why these these grains are and these malts are, are so special and creating distinct products. And so I think science is an important tool in that. Rob, I, I, I saw in New York, you know, the focus on rye and then there's, there's a lot of good rye whiskey being made by small distillers in New York. When I think about bourbon, I don't ever, I mean, unless I'm really thinking about it, I don't ever think about corn. And I remember years ago when Kings County distillery was first distilling in New York, they only had their, they called it corn eau de vie or like a moonshine. <laughs> yeah. It was probably the first mm-hmm. time I really thought that, wow, the base of bourbon is what's 50% corn or, or something like that. Yeah. So how, you, you know, how do you talk more about the corn and, and, well, I mean, I think that's, you know, what, what are the varieties that, that you want to use in your bourbon, you know? Yeah. But I, I think, what you just said is a good example of the, the challenges in front of us. The the consumers at this point, I don't think a lot of them wouldn't understand or know, um, or maybe they don't even care that much that corn is the primary ingredient in bourbon, much less care about what variety or where that corn came from. But you compare that to the wine industry, I mean, people go and choose wines based on the variety. Do they want a Merlot or Cab or Syrah or Pinot Grigio? or based on the region. And I think that's where there's this dichotomy that how do we get to the point where we're, you know, we, we are able to capture the consumer's attention and to the point where they don't just know that corn, that bourbon's made from corn as an example, but that they really like the flavor of bourbon made from bloody butcher corn or um, from, you know, autophile corn that's another really cool variety these are old heirlooms but and i don't know if i have the right answer um i have ideas but i um i think we're talking about years and years of work the same way that in in wine it wasn't until a movement out in california that the idea of putting varieties on the labels really changed the way consumers selected wine on the shelf and so i you know, I think there's just a lot of work in front of us, but a lot of interesting stuff that we can tackle along the way. And I definitely don't think the movement's going anywhere. But um, if I had to, like in whiskey especially, I think the grain usually, um, and, and grain meaning malted grains as well, if you're talking about single malt, um, I think it's probably the, it's always going to, it's always, as of now, it's it plays second fiddle to the important of the oak, the importance of the oak cask. I mean, the oak barrel is always sort of the the poster child and so i you know how do we how do we really show how important the grain is and how different varieties are important in different growing regions and work with breeders and agronomists yeah that, that that's cool that's that's something to look forward to maybe maybe taste some of the corn whiskeys when they're younger too you know wow yeah um, i mean you can taste J- just yet <laughs> we're going to taste yeah. a lot and also just yeah. so you know if you're at the conference we're kicking off thursday on march 16th from four to six if you're just wandering around portland stop by novare res which is the great beer bar of portland and um some folk from blue ox malt are coordinating with novare res uh just a little uh kind of mixer that's uh condoned by the conference where you'll be able to drink some craft malt beers um so that should be going up soon. Mark, I want to go back to the one more thing from, from your talk. Um, you know, when we talk about breeding, I guess I remember high school biology and there's Mendel and peas. Uh, <laughs> I think it was peas. Mm-hmm. But it said you initiated a high-intensity breeding effort in 2016 to develop the malting barley variety, the Excelsior Gold. Yeah. So just get just tell us as, you know, industry people, what what – what do you do with a high intensity breeding effort? I mean, you're not breeding pigs. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, or mice. Um, I've, I've been at Cornell for 44 years. And so I've learned a, a, a few tricks along the way and ways to speed up the breeding process. And, 
and uh, between my graduate students and myself, we we uh, used every trick in the book to try to speed up the development of the variety, including uh, winter seed increases in New Zealand, which were key to cutting cutting time in the development process. We also use a new technique called genomic selection, which is which uses molecular markers uh, uh, across the entire genome to identify those lines that were most promising for yield, disease resistance, and quality. And uh, uh, that combined with uh, early generation testing, um, we got into the foundation seed production program in 2020, and we had certified seed production in 2021. So um, that's about a half to a third of the amount of time that normally takes to develop a multi-body variety. Amazing. That's great. And Rob, what, just another note from your keynote. Um, it says, in your keynote, attendees will learn about the science behind metabolites in grain and how these compounds transition through to flavor compounds. Yeah, the I mean, it actually kind of goes on what Mark was just talking about too with genomic selection. It's, or at least I could dovetail that way. But I mean, ultimately, all the flavor compounds that are important in beer and whiskey are there are metabolite precursors present in the, the the grain that are responsible for them, and they are either uh, they either convert into the flavor compounds from the malting or mashing or distillation process, or maybe even indirectly through yeast metabolism. But if we're gonna go, if we're gonna actually incorporate flavor into to breeding programs into agronomy to try to capture specific flavors like you're talking about, we, we have to know what we're looking for. And it, it's too low throughput to to try to analyze, in my opinion, try to analyze the, the beer or the whiskey itself, especially whiskey. Um, we have to have the ability to, to, um, to focus on the metabolite precursors and the breeding programs if we, if we wanna actually breed um, for flavor. And so, like Mark was saying with genetic selection, they have markers for things like yield and resistance. Well, could there be markers for the flavors we want as well? And so that's that's what that idea of a metabolite precursor is. It's just the, you know, things like carotenoids and fatty acids are in the grain kernels and those turn into really delicious flavors like terpenes and chocolatey aldehydes. So that's that's what, that's what I'm talking about there. Jesse, at the conference, will, will we we be able to taste beer and and whiskeys, or is it just talking? No, there will also be. Yes, there will be. Yes, there will be beer and um, whiskeys made with craft malt available at the conference. Um, I know oh, for great. sure there. I know for sure there will be a lot of Allagash beer. Um, since we're since we're kind of in their backyard, um, so expect that. And um, yeah, we're Blue Ox Malt is actually helping um, us to uh, get some some beer uh, lined up for the event too. So expect some great some great surprises there. That's great. We're gonna we're gonna take talk craft malt and drink Maine. <laughs> I love yes. it. Yes, um, it's we're really gonna have that a good time. It's going to be good. And you have um, some great questions and, and great guests here. I think we'll close it out by, I think that, Rob, I bet you have a question for Mark, because I know that you uh, studied under one of his former students. Um, yeah. We, we got to ask, you got to ask Mark a question, because this, you know, there's not too many scientists that I know of uh, in the Northeast who've done what he's done. I mean, do you, uh, maybe it's just following up on what we are just talking about, but. Do you think there's a path for us to actually incorporate flavor into the breeding programs, whether it's through genetic markers or actually chemical markers themselves, you know, using techniques like mass spec or well, I think so. NIR to measure the metabolites in the grain? Well, I, I, I would be optimistic, Rob, because um, uh, we can predict complex tra traits now already. Right. And if we know what what those uh, aromatics are and their precursors and where they're located in the genome. We can use uh, uh, a few markers to select for the ones we're interested in, or we can do whole genome selection 
for some uh, quality that you're you're uh, able to measure on the on the finished product. But I think it's uh, definitely possible, and and it's going to take some work. It's going to take some work, but um, I I would be optimistic that we can we can eventually get there. Yeah, that's great. Well, listen, great show. If anybody's drinking anything, let me know. I'm drinking. Today's um, in honor of the conference. I'm drinking all regional brain. So, uh, shout out to Exhibit A Brewing in Framingham, Massachusetts. They've been a longtime supporter of uh, Valley Malt, who's not too far from them in Massachusetts. And he's. I remember um, there's a farmer out in Finger Lakes, New York, Tor Eschner, who I know you know, Mark. Oh yeah. Um, a couple times I visited Tor, and he always had Exhibit A beers because. Um, I guess that's how he got paid. <laughs> but his Danko, I know he has a Danko rye. Uh, so uh, Exhibit A, a couple times a year, makes a Danko IPA. And right now I'm drinking one of their standards. It's called Goody Two Shoes. It's Kolsch style, which I know he's using some of the some Valley malt in that. And again, that's a beer where I really do feel like I can taste the malt, or at least I just think it's a great beer. And for grains themselves, uh, back to June Russell and uh, growing YC grains, and now she's at Glenwood. Years ago, she turned me on to just uh, incorporating, you know, regional grains into my diet. So almost every morning, I eat a multi-grain cereal, uh, which is all kind of sourced and kind of processed through Wild High Farms, yeah. uh, who's who's somewhere upstate. Um, but this is my I, I try to have regional grains every day, so um, it's in my diet. And uh, you guys have really been influential uh, to me. <laughs> So um, thank you. Thanks for everything you guys have done. Um, Jesse, any final words? Uh, conference is coming up. Uh, there's still time um, for people to register. Yes, there is still time for you to register. Um, we're not closing in-person registration until March 10th. Um, and for uh, the virtual folks, they'll have even more time to register. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be keeping virtual registration up through the 15th. So um, there's a couple different options of ways to participate for, you know, if you can't make it to Maine, you can still join in for the talks and, and not miss out on the great, uh, you know, information that we're going to be, that these experts like Rob and, and Mark are going to be sharing. Yeah, and I just want to say today, it's February 14th. I'm going to say this, even though this will air later, to me, this is my iHeartCraft malt episode. Um, and for me, <laughs> more and more when people talk about, you know, what are people drinking, hard seltzer or other products, I, I think that, you know, craft malt beers are definitely a way, one, for, for brewers to stand out, and two, just to drink a, a, a better product, which is kind of what you want to do is drink good stuff all the time. And uh, Mark, you want to say anything else before we close out? Just want to thank uh, Jimmy. I just want to thank you and Jesse for uh, inviting me to be on this program with you. It's a it's a wonderful program, and and I really appreciate that. We're glad you could join us, Mark. It was good to have you. Yeah, thank you all very thank much, you guys. And thanks, Mark and Jesse. Thank you, Rob, for joining me here on Heritage Radio Network. Big shout out to our engineer Armin Spengen, who's going to clean this up. And I'm Jimmy Carboni. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right, woo. Thank you. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.